So, um, so hopefully all the men, you guys will be able to make it out next Saturday morning. And, um, and feel free to bring your sons as well. That's not just an adult uh, men's event. Our, our, our sons uh, can come to. Now, you know, the only thing I would say on that as far as like age goes or whatever is, you know, it's, there'll be speakers and breakfast. And as long as they can sit, you know, sit at a table for an hour and a half or so. They can be good. If you don't think they can do that and they're going to be a distraction, then you can make your own decisions <laughs> on, on that sort of thing. Um, but but the, I'm really looking forward to that. So really, uh, I, ho- I hope you can all, all make it and be with us. But if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 6. We took a quick break from our study of the book of Nehemiah last Sunday. As we, we had the Lord's Supper, and, and so we, we did a sermon devoted to that and to get our hearts and minds prepared for what we were doing. But we're back today, and, and we've made it to chapter 6, and, and, and chapter 6 is a big one. Chapter 6 uh, is where we see the wall completed. So we'll really get into the details of that over the next couple of weeks, but we see the wall completed in chapter 6, all in 52 days. So it's, it's an amazing story. And then we see a transition. If, if we remember back to the introduction to the book, we, we talked about those first six chapters being built around the rebuilding of the wall. And then starting in chapter 7 through the end of the book, chapter 13, the rebuilding of the people. And so we'll begin to see a shift over these next few weeks. And, and that's all centered around chapter 6. And, and like I said, we'll get to the specifics of the completion uh, in the wall in the upcoming weeks, but this does give us the theme for the chapter, and I've kind of given you a theme for each chapter as we've gone along. And the theme of chapter 6 is completion. It's completion. They complete that initial work of, of rebuilding the walls and the gates around Jerusalem that, that God had tasked them with doing. But what we're going to find out this morning is that it doesn't come easy. It never does, right? It never comes easy. And, 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 and if it does, you probably maybe ought to be looking at and questioning what it is that you're doing. But it, it doesn't come easy. And when you're committed to a building project, to, committed to serving the Lord with your life and, and building for the Lord, the devil is going to fight you to the very end. There's never really a point where you can let your guard down because he's not going to stop fighting. And, and it reminds me of words that, that Luke used in Luke chapter 4. So we have the famous story of the temptation of Jesus, right? So in, in Matthew chapter 3, we have his baptism. Immediately in Matthew chapter 4, those first 11 verses, he comes out, goes into the wilderness, 40 days, 40 nights, is, is tempted of the devil through those three temptations. You see that account in Luke chapter 4 also, and there's a very interesting phrase that, that Luke uses, the Holy Spirit uses in the, through Luke, uh, as they're coming out of that temptation in Luke 4.13. And it says, when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. For a season. He, he might leave you alone for a little bit. But as long as you're still serving the Lord, he's eventually going to find his way back. He's going to find his way back to you, and he's not gone for good. And he, he might change how he attacks, and he might change, you know, who he attacks, but attack is inevitable within the body of Christ. 
And here at the beginning of chapter 6, we do see a, a bit of a shift in the enemy's attack. And Because this might sound surprising, but I'll, but I'll show it to you. Because for the very first time, Nehemiah is attacked directly. The very first time in this book, Nehemiah is attacked direct, directly. It's where we get our title for today's message, The Attack on the Leader. And if you've been with us throughout this series, you know that that they have encountered attacks from the enemy throughout the book. You know, chapter 1 is kind of the introduction and, and, and Nehemiah hearing the report and, and, and getting the burden. And then you move into chapter 2 and we see the enemy show up in chapter 2 right when Nehemiah lands in Jerusalem and makes this burden known. And so you, we've, we all know about these attacks that we've seen but, but maybe you haven't noticed that all of the previous attacks from the enemies have been in general in nature. And they've been focused on the group at large, everyone working on the wall, everyone on the building project. So there hasn't been anything specific and personal. So let me show you. The first attack, like I said, chapter 1, sort of the introduction, Nehemiah shows up in chapter 2 and he, he does his covert mission to go check out um, what the situation is really like. And the first attack from the enemies that we see is in chapter 2, verse 19. And it says, But when Sambalat the Horonite, and Tobiah the servant, and Ammonite the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it about what Nehemiah was, was telling the people that they needed to do, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Ye is a plural, second person uh, uh, plural. And, 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 and you see there, it's not specific. It's talking to everybody. Us, we, ye. They're targeting everyone. And then we get into chapter 3. In chapter 3, we just see the, the, who, who, who's building where and, and, and kind of how they're laid out along the wall. And we, so, so we don't see the enemy attack, but then chapter 4, they come back in full force. Chapter 4 was the chapter of opposition. And immediately in verse 1 of chapter 4, the enemies are back. And it says, But it came to pass that when Samballot heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. All of them. And then look down at verse 8. And conspired all of them together to come to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. The entire city. Everybody. Look at verse 11. And our adversaries, they shall know, neither see, they shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst among them and slay them and cause the work to cease. They're targeting everybody. Look at verse 15 of Nehemiah chapter 4. And it came to pass what our enemies heard that it was known unto us. And God had brought their counsel to naught, that we returned, all of us, to the wall, everyone into his work. So it's just this general attack all throughout chapter 4, that chapter on opposition. It's not specific and it's not personal. They're attacking generally. Chapter 5, we see more opposition, but it's internal. We, we take a break from the external enemies and the satanic attack. There was internal fighting amongst the Jews themselves. And so then that brings us into chapter 6. And so every attack up through chapter 5 is sort of general, was widespread. It was meant to discourage every Israelite in Jerusalem. 
They were attacks on the project as whole, as a whole. But chapter 6 is different. As things are nearing the finish line, the devil turns up the heat a notch, and things get personal. And the attack is specific, and it is specifically directed at Nehemiah. And that should come as no surprise, because he's the leader. And they were attacking the leader in, in a certain way, in a specific way. Because it's very clear from this chapter that these personal attacks were designed to elicit fear. They were designed to elicit fear. We see that in verse 9. We'll just look through a few verses here in chapter 6 just to prove that to you. Nehemiah 6 verse 9, we'll get to this verse later this morning. But it says, For they all made us afraid, saying, Their hands shall be weakened from the work that it be not done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. And then down to verse 13 and 14, we, we see it affecting Nehemiah personally. He says, therefore was he hired that I should be afraid and do so in sin and that they might have matter of an evil report that they might reproach me. My God, think, of, think thou upon Tobiah and Sambalat according to these their works and on the prophets Noadiah and the rest of the prophets that would have put me in fear. And then look at verse 19. Also they reported his good deeds before me and uttered my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to put me in fear. And we're going to have more to say about fear next week. But I point this out because chapter 6 obviously comes on the heels of chapter 5. And, and you're welcome for that. We like to do deep study <laughs> here at First Baptist Church. But in chapter 5... We ended by talking about the key to biblical leadership being a, a healthy and biblical fear of God. Right? Do you remember that? It's two weeks ago. And, and that's how we all need to live. Because when we live with a healthy and biblical fear of God, understanding what that means, it leads to holiness, it leads to service, it leads to sacrifice, it leads to those things we covered in that sermon. But, but obviously Satan knows that. He's aware of that. And he knows all that you can be and do when you fear God the way the Bible describes and the way the Bible outlines like we need to. So he fights against that. And he wants you to fear him through fearing man in place of fearing the Lord. And what we see in our text this morning is that he attacks the leader through fear in a couple of different ways. One is, is the, the subtle attack, we're going to get to it, but it's, it's just through the fear of, the fear of missing out, or, or, or maybe better said, the, the fear of what taking that hard but right step is going to mean. You know, what's it going to cost? You know, if you do the right thing, and it's, it's difficult, but it's, but it's the right thing to do, what's that going to cost you? That's the first way he attacks, and then the other is more overt. It's a direct attack and it includes fear of what could happen. What could happen to you personally? What could happen to your family? Fear of losing a job, those sorts of things. Now listen, this just proves the Bible because we know from the Bible that the devil works a couple different ways. First of all, he works as an angel of light. 
2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says, And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. So he can be deceptive and he can be tricky and, and try to lure us into fearing man. Kind of, kind of with the, through a backdoor approach. But sometimes he comes in as a roaring lion. And he's not trying to hide his agenda at all. That's 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And we're going to see him work both of these ways in our text this morning. And make no mistake about it, it's all about fear, and it's all about getting the leader to not fear God, but to fear man instead. And fear what can be done. Fear might what happen. Whatever, it's all fear of the wrong things. And as we go through this passage this morning and and look at how our enemy is trying to scare us, I want all of you to put yourself in the place of Nehemiah. I know that Nehemiah was the leader, and, and this message will have pertinent and particular applicability to the leaders of our ministries that that we have in this church this morning. And you might not be a leader, you might not consider yourself a leader, but listen, we've talked about this all along. You're going to be a a leader somewhere, in your home, with your family, at your job. Can you point someone to Jesus? If you have the ability to lead someone to Jesus, then you're at least a leader in that sense. Therefore, you need to know how you're going to be attacked personally, and then how to handle those attacks biblically. So let's look at this passage together and and see what the Lord has to teach us. Nehemiah chapter 6, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 9, 1 through 9 this morning. It says, Now it came to pass, when Samballot and Tobiah and Geshem the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I had builded the wall and that there was no breach left therein, though at the time I had not set up the doors upon the gates, the Samballot and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me mischief. And I sent messengers unto them, saying, I'm doing a great work, so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? Yet they sent unto me four times after this sort, and I answered them after the same manner. Then sent Samballot a servant unto me in, in like manner the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. Wherein it was written, It is reported among the heathen, and Gashmu saith it, that thou and the Jews think to rebel. For which cause thou buildest the wall, that thou mayest be their king, according to these words. And thou hast also appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. And now shall it be reported to the king according to these words. Come now, therefore, and let us take counsel together. Then I sent unto him, saying, There are no such things done as thou sayest, because thou feignest them out of thine own heart. For they all made us afraid, saying, Their hands shall be weakened from the work, that it be not done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. All right, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer and ask him to, to work in our life this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we do come to you this morning and uh, in a place of need. We, we all showed up here this morning to hear from you. And um, at least that's my desire, maybe not everybody, but I know many people are in here and they want to hear from you this morning. So Lord, I pray that, that you speak. I, I pray that you speak clearly and I pray that you speak as only you can and into our lives. Lord, we're all at different spots. We all have different roles. We're all leaders in, in, in different ways and, and different areas of our life. And, 
and even if we're just leading ourselves and, and, and trying to, to live a holy life. And, and, and so, Lord, I pray that, that you meet everybody where they're at. And I, this is a very, you know, kind of specific message. Um, and yet, Lord, your word's perfect, and, and, and your word can, can do whatever you want it to do. And so, Lord, I pray that you meet everyone where they're at this morning, and I pray that, that you would speak into all of our lives exactly what it is we need to hear. And, and Lord, I pray that, that our hearts would be softened, we'd be sensitive to respond uh, to, to how you need us to respond and how we need to be in fellowship with you, serving you. Uh, with our life. So Lord, I pray that everything that is said is true to your word. I pray that it's honoring and glorifying to you. I pray that, that this entire service is a sweet savor uh, for you this morning and that you'd be glorified through it. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So what we see in these verses, in these nine verses, there, there are two very distinct attacks on Nehemiah. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning, the, the, the attacks of the leader. And, and of course, you know, there's you know, the, the devil attacks all sorts of ways. I'm not saying these are the only two attacks, but, but, but they are in the two um, kind of buckets that we looked at with 2 Corinthians 11, 14, the angel of light, and then the roaring lion in 1 Peter 5, 8. And, and he, he does work in both of those ways. And so we're going to focus on these two attacks this morning, and we're going to look at them in some detail. We're going to see what the goal is behind them, and then we're going to see the answer. How Nehemiah combats them and how he fights back. And the first attack we see is a subtle attack in private. A subtle attack in private. This is how Nehemiah is attacked in verses 1 through 4. Let's read those verses again one more time and break them down. Now it came to pass when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left therein, though at the time I had not set up the doors upon the gates. The Sambalat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me mischief. And I sent messengers unto them, saying, I'm doing a great work, so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? Yet they sent unto me four times after this sort, and I answered them after the same manner. So when we get here to the beginning of chapter 6, you know, I told you this chapter is sort of as a transition chapter. And the plot really thickens here at the beginning of chapter 6. Because Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem are unholy trinity. The exact same three guys who have been fighting this project from the moment they heard about it, now all of a sudden they want to help. They're no longer fighting against... Now they want to come together and meet in the plain of Ono. And Nehemiah says, oh no, it's not going to happen. It's a good, that's a good dad joke right there. Craig should be proud. But, it's, but listen, it's not just a joke. It's important because the plain of Ono was located in the region of Samaria, roughly between Jerusalem and the city Samaria. And this rep represents the enemy's goal in this sort of attack. And the goal is compromise. The goal is compromise. And we don't have time for a, 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 a real deep study of this, but, but we need to go into this a little bit. You need to know who the Samaritans were. The Samaritans were a people that came out of an unequal yoke. They were a people that came out of compromise. 
They came, out, uh, uh, they came about after the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom of Israel. And the Jews and the Assyrians got together after that time and they started marrying each other. And out of that came the people group, the Samaritans. We see that in 2 Kings chapter 17. So verse 24 of 2 Kings 17 says, And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharvim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. And this chapter, 2 Kings 17, outlines really who the Samaritans were. In fact, the first first mention of the word Samaritan is found in verse 29, in 2 Kings 17, 29. But look at what, what verse 33 says about them. Because remember, they were a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. A picture of the church and the world mixing together in a compromised fashion. So 2 Kings 17, 33, speaking about the Samaritans, says, They feared the Lord and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. And if there had just been a period after they feared the Lord, all would be good. But there isn't. It goes on and says, They, they feared the Lord and they served their own gods. You see, they were a mix. They were a picture of compromise. A picture of Laodicea having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. They were religious, but they were not biblical. And they came up with their own religious system, even their own temple. That's why the Samaritan woman was confused about who Jesus was when she meets him in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, 4, verses 19 and 20, it says, The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Listen, I know that you're somebody, but look, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. They'd set up their own system, their own temple, and they were messed up because they were compromised. And that's exactly what these enemies of Nehemiah wanted. This is exactly the place that these enemies of Nehemiah wanted to take him, to Samaria, to the world, to a place of compromise. I mean, listen, Nehemiah, you don't have to quit working on the wall completely. Why don't you just take a break for a few days and let's come together. You've been at this for a while. You deserve a break. And... And you don't even have to go all the way into the world. How about you just come halfway? Why don't we meet in the middle? And this is how the enemy attacks our work as well. This is how he attacks our life as well. In our homes and in our churches, the attacks usually start subtly, behind the scenes. Not in public, but in private. And they're meant to see if you're willing to compromise on the work that God's called you to do. And the way that he's called you to do it. To honor and obey your parents and those in authority over you if that's you and it fits. To be a godly husband or wife if that's you and that fits. To raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord if that's you and that fits. 
to serve the Lord in ministry through this local church. Whatever it is that God has called you to be and to do, don't move off that. Stay on that wall because that's how you glorify the Lord. And it's so easy today to get distracted by the attack of compromise. We are all susceptible to fall for it. It is Laodicea. And sometimes the enemy sounds good. And they sound like they want to help. And sometimes it might even sound like a good opportunity. It could be anything. Maybe it's a job offer or something that would be really good for your kids. It could be anything. And it means that, you know, you won't be around here as much or you won't be at home as much. But, but surely that's okay. I mean, you know, you're still going to attend church. I, I mean, I can't serve in ministry anymore. I don't have time, I don't have time for that but I'm still going to go. So that just means you're distracted. And as we see here in Nehemiah, that's all part of Satan's plan. And just know that God doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want you to compromise on what he's called you to do. And it's not about the opportunity. We'll talk about that in a second. Not all opportunities are bad. Not all changes are bad. But you have to be able to understand if this is Satan attacking you or not. What we do know is that he desires for us, all of us, to be engaged in the mission. Living a life that's glorifying to him. In 1 Corinthians 7, within the context of the marriage relationship, that whole chapter, right? Kind of a primer for marriage and and, and the marriage relationships and dealing with problems in it. The good and the bad that comes with it. Paul says something very interesting, right? He has that set of verses, like starting in verse 29, it's really, really interesting in the context of marriage. And in verse 35, it says, And this I speak for your own profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you, but for, for that which is comely, and that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction. You see, that's God's goal for all of us, to attend upon him without distraction. And that was Paul's point with respect to marriage. When you're married, when you're married there are certain things that you have to care about that are worldly. But don't let anything else get in the way. So have, we need to always be asking ourselves, what's getting in the way? Are we letting anything get in the way of be able, being able to serve the Lord? Are we distracted? Is there something or someone in your life that's keeping you from attend, attending upon the Lord without distraction? And if so, your enemy is successfully and subtly attacking you. There are so many distractions that we face today. Man, and our flesh is just begging for them. But we have to fight against that. I mean, that's, that's Colossians 3, right? 1 and 2. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, for Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things of this earth. The things of this earth, they're all distractions. And they're so many of them, just distraction after distraction after distraction after distraction, and we're just like the squirrel, man, bing, 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 jumping all around. We're like the dog, you know, chasing his tail, and we laugh at him. We laugh at the dog, you know, our dog will go running through, and he's chasing, oh, look at that silly dog chasing his tail, and the Lord's just like, because we're doing the exact same thing. 
It's a different context. We're just chasing our tail, chasing distractions. Because we're good at it. We're good at chasing one distraction after another. Getting down off the wall time and time again. Jumping down. And then, then we'll go back and then we jump down. and It's just who we are. You know, walking halfway to the world. You know, we're not, we're not, for many of us, so, so, some people certainly are, but some of us at least, we're not willing to go all the way to the world. I mean, don't be ridiculous. Way too godly for that. But halfway, you know, what harm is there in that? I mean, surely God's okay with that. And listen, again, I'm not saying that all opportunities, I, you know, I use that word, I'm not saying all opportunities is bad. They're not. I'm not saying all change is bad. It's not. I'm not even saying all compromise is bad. Some is good. Like in the context of marriage, right, there is compromise that needs to occur in the context of a, of a relationship. But we have to, we, in, those, in those areas, we need to be able to compromise biblically. But you have to be able to make a determination. Is this a compromise with the world? Is this, is this an attack of Satan that he's, where he's wanting us to come down off the wall? Or is this just a different wall that he wants us to be on? We have to be able to make that determination. And that brings us to Nehemiah's answer. Because in order to make the right determination, the first thing you need is discernment. You need to be able to discern whether this is an adversarial attack or not. Is this coming from Satan? Or not. But if it is, you can know that God does not want it for you. And Nehemiah was able to discern that. Look at verse 2 again. That Samballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But look at his discernment. But they thought to do me mischief. He knew what was up. And I, and I don't... I don't even only mean that in, in the, you know, the colloquial sense. I mean it literally. Because in verse 3, he said he was going to stay up on the wall and not come down. Verse 3, and I sent messengers unto them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? See, Nehemiah knew that coming down off of that wall to meet with them was a step in the wrong direction. It was a step down. And we have to be able to determine and see if the decisions we are making are sending us up or down. You have to be able to discern. And you say, well, man, how do I do that? I mean, the enemy, you already said, the enemy sounds good sometimes. And he's deceptive. And he's an angel of light. How am I supposed to know if, it's, if this is an attack of Satan or not? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the Bible says. Let's start in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. It says, where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, what doest thou? Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no, shall feel no evil thing. And a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. So if you're wise, you're able to discern. 
And you get that wisdom and power from the king's word. But you got to spend some time in it. Which brings us to Hebrews 5.14. It says, But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to what? To discern both good and evil. So knowing the word of God, leads you to be able to discern. And then it's practically applied to your life as you walk in the Spirit, right? So discernment, wisdom, power, comes from God's Word. How do you understand? That is a book that is spiritually discerned. So 1 Corinthians 2, verses 13 and 14. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but that which the Holy Ghost teacheth. That's the wisdom we need. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And all this means is that, okay, you want to know, how can I know? How can I receive discernment? How can I be discerning? Will you get it from the Holy Spirit as you spend time in God's Word? That's it. It's Christianity 101. Sorry, I wish it was something cooler. But that's it. But that's all we need. Do you want to be wise? Do you want to be able to make good decisions that glorify the Lord? Do you want to have power? Then let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and the Spirit of God, and let the Spirit of God lead you based upon that meditation. That's it. So you need discernment. That's the first part of Nehemiah's answer. But then secondly, you also need devotion. Look at verse 3 one more time. And I sent messengers unto them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? I, I, I mean, I, I love that. You know, he's just, why should I come to you guys? You guys are a bunch of idiots. You've been fighting this thing the whole time. I'm doing a great work here. I'm not coming down. Are you kidding me? And we see another great here. The book of Nehemiah is filled with them. And we've seen this one before. And Nehemiah was doing a a great work, and it was a work that he was devoted to. He's like, listen, I'm not coming down to talk to you guys. That sounds, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I mean, this is, you know, this is how I hear it. It's probably, maybe it's different. Nehemiah is probably more godly than me. That's how I hear it. And this was because the work meant something to Nehemiah. It wasn't just something it was doing, it was who he was. He was a builder for the Lord. See, he wasn't just talking about doing a great work. He was actually doing it. He was on the wall. He would have had to have come down off the wall. He was literally working on the wall. And that identity defined him more than anything else. His identity in the Lord, in in serving the Lord. And I want you to know this morning that it is a great privilege to be able to do the work of the Lord. It's a great work. Charles Spurgeon once said that if God has called you to be his minister, you should never stoop to becoming a king. The Lord's work is the greatest work that there is. So we should be devoted to it. And if you're devoted to the work, you won't be so easily distracted by the subtle attacks of the enemy. They might be going on around you, but you're too busy to pay attention. The work's too important. And then what you realize 
biblically is there aren't enough people doing it. If I come down, if not you, then who? If not me, then who? Reckon, Nehemiah recognized that in, in chapter 4, verse 19. And I said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, the work is great and large, and we are separated upon the wall one far from another. They didn't have enough people, even though they were able to complete it in 52 days. They needed more. And that reminds me a little bit of Matthew 9.37. It says, He saith unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. So there's a work that is worthy to be devoted to. It's a great work. It is a privilege to be a part of it. And yet not enough people are participating. If you're on the wall, don't come down. If you're not on the wall, get on the wall. We all need to work together. And Nehemiah shows us that example. And then the third part of Nehemiah's answer to this attack and, and, and what we also need to be able to handle these subtle attacks of, of compromise is decisiveness. We see this in verse 4. And yet they sent unto me four times after this sort, and I answered them after the same manner. You see, Nehemiah's enemies kept coming four times. They were persistent. They kept bugging him. And sometimes our enemy will do just that because he knows if he just keeps coming, maybe he can wear us down. It's kind of like that widow did with the unjust judge in Luke chapter 18, verse 5. He said, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And we too can be susceptible to that. It's why it's so important to, to stay in God's word and stay walking in the spirit. Because when we fall out of that, we can become susceptible to those subtle attacks and the weariness of just the day after day after day after day. Keep coming. And we're strong at first, but they just keep coming. One time, two times, three times, four times. And finally, finally you're just like, whatever. Let's go to Ono. But you can't do that. Don't give in. Once you've discerned that you're facing an attack from the enemy and you know that there is a work that you need to devote yourself to, then be decisive in your decision making and stick to it. As even when he keeps coming, stick to it. Don't doubt in the dark what God showed you in the light. Keep up on the wall. Be decisive and determined. That's exactly what 1 Thessalonians 5.21 tells us to do. Prove all things. There's your discernment. Hold fast that which is good. That's your decisiveness. That's how you answer the subtle attacks in private. The attacks that are trying to compromise your position on the wall, serving the Lord to his glory. But there's a second type of attack that Nehemiah faces. And this one isn't subtle. The, the subtle attack didn't work here. So that the enemies go all in, which, which we see many times at all. They'll, they'll try the first approach, and when that doesn't work, then they go all in. And the second type of attack on the leader and, and on the Nehemiahs in here that we see in this passage is a slanderous attack in public. 
it's a slanderous attack in public. So the first was subtle and in private. This is slanderous and this is public. Look at verse 5. So he kept coming four times, didn't work. Nehemiah stood strong. So they change and they come a different way. Verse 5, then sent Samballot his servant unto me in like manner the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. Wherein was written, it is reported among the heathen, and Gashemu saith it, that thou and the Jews think to rebel. For which cause thou buildest the wall, that thou mayest be their king, according to these words. Now it's also appointed a prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying there's a king in Judah. And now shall it be reported to the king according to these words. Come now therefore, let us take counsel together. Then I sent unto him, saying, There are no such things done as thou sayest. But thou feignest, you fake, you're, you're lying, you're made, making them up. Thou feignest them out of thine own heart. For they all made us afraid, saying, Their hands shall be weakened from the work, that it be not done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. So, so I, you, you can probably see what's happening. They couldn't get Nehemiah off the wall to meet with them. So, so Sanballat and his, his band of hoodlums, his ne'er-do-wells, they, how often do they do well ne'er? Sorry. <laughs> Listen, that's funny to me. That's a comedian, and that dude is stinking funny. Is ne'er do how often? Ne'er. Anyway, right, anyway, all right. Jennifer knows what I'm talking about. Um, so Nehemiah, his group of all these guys, right, they send an open letter accusing Nehemiah and his followers of a rebellion. And there are a couple things to note here. First of all, it says it was an open letter. That means it was open to the public for all to read. So this was a public attack. And it was a repeat attack, by the way. They just copied what the enemies of Israel did in Ezra chapter 4 to stop the rebuilding of the temple there for a while. Apparently letters were the, you know, the, the form of attack at this point in history. And, but not only was this letter public, it was also full of lies. They said that Nehemiah was starting a rebellion and that he had anointed himself king of Jerusalem. Like that was even a thing. Like it didn't, it didn't even say the king of Judah. It says king in Judah. Like he was the king in Jerusalem. That, that was never any such thing. He would anointed himself this. And it, he, they said that he had established his own prophets. It says to preach of thee. So verse 7 says, Nehemiah, they were saying, had set up his own prophets to preach about him and how great he was. And of course, this was all lies. It was slander. And it was dangerous slander. Because if the king of Persia found out about this, the project would not only be stopped, but Nehemiah would be killed. But listen, that's our enemy. We know from John 8, 44, that he's a liar and the father of it. He's used lying as one of his tricks of the trade throughout time. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. You know, we see him very early on in history in the book of Job. In Job 1.9, he lies about Job and Job's intentions. He questioned why Job even feared God. So lying, he's a liar and the father of it. Lying is what he does. And by the way, in John 8.44, also says that he is a murderer. And lying and murder were both on the agenda in Nehemiah chapter 6. So because of the seriousness of these false accusations, we see the goal in this type of attack. 
And the goal here is conquest. That roaring lion is seeking whom he may devour. And Nehemiah's enemies were moving in and desired a crushing defeat. And our enemy will do that too at times through this kind of attack. And he sets out to ruin someone's reputation, ruin their ministry, because he wants the great work to stop. And that is something worthy of fighting for. And so we see Nehemiah's answer to this attack in verses 8 and 9. And it starts with his willingness to defend. Look at verse 8. And then I sent unto him, saying, There are no such things done as thou sayest, but thou feignest them out of thine heart. And, he, and, and I want you to notice that. He just says, you're lying. It's not true. None of that's true. He didn't go on to then say, no, I'm actually a really good leader. I'm just serving the Lord. I'm just do-. No. He just said, you know what? That's all, that's all false. It's all a lie. And he calls out the lie because he's defending truth. And that's the key. He didn't defend himself, per se. He defended the truth. And we saw this with Paul when we went through the book of 2 Corinthians. There were times when Paul felt he had to defend himself. And he would even, he would even talk about the folly in it while doing it at times. But he had to do it for truth's sake. Not for his own sake, but for truth's sake and for sake of the work. And that was the case with Nehemiah here. It wasn't just his own reputation on the line. The work of the Lord was on the line too. So Nehemiah had to say something. And I've told you this before. If someone says something untrue about me, I won't like it. But if, it, if it's just about me, whatever. But if it's something untrue about me that affects others and affects this church, well, okay, that needs to be defended. For truth's sake, for your sake, for the ministry's sake. But as always in things like this, the key is your own attitude. And whether deep down your defense is done in pride or it's done in integrity, in biblical integrity. Because there's an interesting distinction in the Bible, and we've actually talked about this before, but, I, but it's, it's important and it fits here, and I want to remind you about it. The, the Bible talks about standing against things, not really standing for things. Okay, the phrase stand for or standing for is only found four times in the Bible, and it's never about us standing up for things, even God. Because God can handle that on his own. In fact, one of those verses is Isaiah 40, verse 8, that says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. But we are absolutely told to stand against things. So we're told to stand against the devil, right? Ephesians 6, 11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And now listen, I certainly understand that there's only a subtle difference in the two. And the Bible does tell us to contend for the faith in the book of Jude. And we see stories of, of, of people like David standing, you know, standing up for the Lord, so to speak, against Goliath. So I'm not trying to make too much of this. I certainly don't want to make more of it than the Bible does. But I do think there's a subtle difference, and, and I think the difference lies in our attitude. 
behind it. It's, you know, standing for things. It's a good, strong American concept. But it's more physically focused and more self-centered. To where standing against things is more spiritually focused and more truth-centered. And when you get to that spot and you're centered on truth and defending for the right reasons, then you can do what Nehemiah did next. And this is the second and the last piece to answering the slanderous attacks. You speak the truth, you defend the truth, and then you depend. You just have to depend. And of course you depend, you defend, and then you depend on the Lord. And you depend on him to take care of the situation. Look at verse 9. For they all made us afraid, saying their hands shall be weakened from the work that it be not done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. And Nehemiah admitted here that he was a little shaken by this open letter, as you can imagine. I think anybody would be. And that was obviously their goal. They wanted the work to be not done. That's what verse 9 says. But Nehemiah's response was not to succumb to the fear of man, but he prayed his fifth prayer in this book. And he asked the Lord to strengthen his hands. And, and, and it's, you know, it's just interesting to me. Nehemiah, a godly leader, I know he prayed for the people and the, and the Israelites, but, but, I, but I do want you to notice the distinction here in verse 9. For they, may, for they all made us afraid saying their hands shall be weakened from the work that it be not done. And then look at what Nehemiah says. Now therefore, O God, strengthen, strengthen my hands. And he was praying for himself as, as the leader in this situation. And that's a godly prayer. Because he didn't pray, he didn't even pray that God would restore his reputation. Like if there, if there was anybody that was out there believing the lies. He didn't even pray that God would do that or that God would exact revenge on all the liars as much as we, we want that. He didn't pray that prayer. He didn't ask God for any of that. I kind of wish he would have. He just asked that God would strengthen his hands. And he made that request because he was focused on the work. You see, his hands represented the work of the Lord. And it does throughout the Bible. I mean, you, could, you see this all throughout the Bible. I'll just, for sake of time, just going to show you one verse. Psalm 90, verse 17. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. See, he was devoted to the work. That's what he cared about. And, and, and man, they were right at the end. It said in verse 2, the work was done. He just, he just had to put the doors on the gates. That was all that was left. They were right at the end. Everything was almost done. And he cared more about the work than he cared about himself. And Nehemiah sure didn't want to mess it up. He didn't want to mess up the job right before it was complete. And listen, I think we're near the end too. And in today's age, it's so easy to get distracted and get discouraged and, and get our focus off and get thinking about ourselves. Let's not do that. 
We should be devoted to the work and and be truth-centered, and we can let God deal with our enemies. And even if he doesn't deal with them the way we we wish he would, which seems to usually happen, we still got to trust him in that. We'll depend on him. He'll take care of it one day. And we trust him to do the work. And, and to, so we got to stay on the wall. Because when he comes back to take us home, like I said, I think the job's almost done. Let him find us on the wall. Let him find us serving in spite of the attacks. Let's not compromise, especially not now. And let's not be conquered. Let's not let that happen. That's the enemy's goal. He'll take either one. Let's not give it to him. Don't fall on either side. Don't compromise to the world. And don't let the devil conquer you. And just demoralize you to where you're, no, you're not useful for the work anymore. No, let's stay on the wall and let's work till the job is done. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And as I do every week, I just want you to ask yourself if there's anything that God showed you this morning that you need to get right with him. You know, maybe you need to get back on the wall. Maybe you compromised, or maybe at one point the devil fought so hard that he just conquered you, and, and you quit working, and you've just never come back. You know, maybe he was so strong that you quit depending on the Lord, you, you wound up in Samaria and the world. Well, if that's you, man, it's, there's still time. The job's not done, so we still need help. So go get back on the wall. And if there's anything you need to deal with, can I encourage you to do it? Don't let another day go by where you're out of fellowship with the Lord. The job's almost done. The trump is about to sound. Don't leave the wall now. Don't get distracted now. Stay devoted and diligent to the work. And if you're not working, will you start doing something today? Will you repent of your sins and come back to him in faith today? And if you don't know him, As your Lord and Savior, I say this every week, man, there is room for you in his family. And his arms are open. He's already done all the work. He paid the price. He counted the cost and he paid the price. And he died a perfect death as the perfect sacrifice so that we could live forever with him. And you just have to place your faith in that. In his finished work on the cross, that, that, uh, as a perfect sacrifice accepted by God the Father, that he lived, he died, he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And you exchange your sinful life for his perfect sinless life. It's Romans 10 verses 9 and 10. And you can accept Christ as your Savior and be saved by just, by just doing that, by just praying now and placing your faith in him. Letting him know that you're a sinner and asking him to come into your heart and into your life and save you. And if you need someone to help you with that, let us know. Come forward during this song and let us know and we'll, we'll, we'll walk you through the Bible on what it means to be saved. But if you need to get right with him, whether you're saved or not, take this time, this time of worship, this final song of contemplation to make sure you're where you need to be with him. Dear Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we are so grateful for your word, and, and man, it, there's, it's just, 
it just amazes me every time. Every time we open it up, there's something in there. And there's something there for us, and there's something there for me. And what I'm dealing with at, in that given day, it's, it's just perfect. And so we're so grateful for it, Lord. I pray that you're continuing to work on, on every heart in here. And Lord, as, as, being, as a need to be a Nehemiah, to serve you in, in the different roles that, that, that you have placed us in and where we find ourselves. Lord, I, I just pray that we can see that, that need just to seek you with our life and to stay on the wall and, and Lord, just to, to live a life that's glorifying and honoring to you. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know you as personal Savior, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit convicts them now. And Lord, I pray that, that they would take the step that they need to, to meet you today and, and, and to enter in to your heavenly family as a, as a son of God. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for all, all that you do, for all that you are in our life and in this church. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.